Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've got a weekend's worth of news to catch up on, plus what's going on today. We have a bunch of, I feel like we have a a couple of really serious stories and then Mm -hmm. a bunch of really fun ones. Yes. Fun if you sort of like, you know, the Pentagon investigates itself kind of, you know, it's amusing. It's a little amusing. Um, we are, of course, going to talk about Hurricane Fiona and Puerto Rico's island-wide power outage. Again. Again. Yes, and why the, the grid is still so fragile. Mm-hmm. Five years on from it, the destruction of Hurricane Maria. Yeah. We, uh, I think, should also mention the storm that devastated Alaska over the past several days, starting yeah. before, starting like Thursday, I think. It's, it's the, it was the strongest storm recorded in alaska in the last century yeah i mean Says a, a lot huge storm right and really not getting a ton of sort of sustained attention no um, no that's right it is just now kind of dissipating right you have the, the mm-hmm. floods receding a little bit the extent of the damage is not clear the affected areas apparently spread for a thousand miles and include some of the most rep- remote parts of of the entire united states um also bears mentioning that alaska has a very large native population, the highest uh, native proportion of its population of any state, uh, many of whom live in these remote villages. That's right. And so, you know, there are Alaskans who are wondering where the federal emergency declaration is from Biden. Biden declared a federal emergency with regard to Puerto Rico. Um, there's, you know, not comparing, but saying we could really use one too, especially because you were talking about remote areas where, you know, if you're house is destroyed or half your village is destroyed uh you can't just drive an hour down no, no, the road no. to get to another one you might not there might not be a road That's there right. might not ever have been a road like there are places that are accessible only by air places That's that right. are accessible only by water so yeah you know i i went to i've only been to alaska once and it's, I, it's really stunning truly i would highly highly recommend it if you've got the time and the money and the inclination it's an amazing place um but even the capital city of Juneau is accessible only by air. I love it. I love places it's amazing. Like that. I stopped on the PCT in a town that is only accessible by uh, either accessible by trail wow. or by water. Wow. wow. There, are, there are some car. There's like a little road, but it doesn't go anywhere. It just sort of goes uh-huh. up a hill and down a hill. Jeez, oh man. Love it. So we will talk about that. Um, we are going to talk about some flashpoints in Western Asia right now. Yeah. Uh, we're going to ask whether Nancy Pelosi has solved the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, on tenterhooks awaiting the answer to that oh, one. Boy. We'll take a look at the state of European industry as energy prices continue to be, you know, simply uh, unpayable. Uh, and look at some tensions over efforts undertaken to support the Ukrainian economy that are undercutting producers elsewhere in Europe. So, you know, it, yeah, trying to keep this economy afloat. But now you have farmers in Poland and Bulgaria and elsewhere saying, hey, man, we're being flooded with cheap grain. Like this isn't a we yes. don't want to be the ones who bear the brunt of this. That's right. We will talk about Joe Biden committing U.S. troops to another future potential conflict. And uh, maybe get into how well that's going down in China, where Joe Biden continues to continues to insist he's not changing policy while he really does yes. make these. Pro- uh, yeah, that is uh, that's wild. I'm, in 
I'm sorry. Go right ahead. I was just going to say in the second hour, we're going to get into the fun stuff about the Pentagon. I mentioned Pentagon taking a good hard look at its own bot networks and fake news promotion systems after the U.S. government ran afoul of social media rules against coordinated, inauthentic activity. We're going to talk about The New York Times blaming, you know, Russian trolls. For the demonization of Linda Sarsour and the sort of infighting that befell the Women's March, while, again, giving U.S. conservatives a total pass. I also remember talking about how crummy that was on this show a few years ago. Sure. You know, the the demonization of Linda Sarsour has been going on for a long time. A long time. It's not the Russians didn't invent it. The Russians didn't invent the whole thing about care, right? The the, um, C-A-I-R. It wasn't the Russians that protested her speaking at Harvard, for example. No. It was the MAGA people. No, you wipe all that away and you discover that anything that you don't like in American culture and politics, you can find a Russian root for. Yeah, exactly right. We have some interesting protests in Iran. We will see if there is really anything to update us on with regards to the status of a new nuclear deal. Yeah. We are going to talk don't about hold your breath. We're going to talk about the push for electric vehicles in the context of all of these disclosures both from, you know, about a year ago and and current ones about how dishonest big fossil fuel companies are when it comes to their public climate commitments and their public support for supposed solutions to carbon emissions and whatever, right? It's, it blows my mind <laughs> that we can simultaneously uh, look at See these documents coming out, right? These internal emails that say, basically say like, sure, yeah, in public, we we say we support the Paris Climate Agreement, but make sure you don't say anything that could possibly represent an actual commitment because, in fact, we have no intention of doing that. We have no intention of you know, re- reducing the amount of oil we're pumping. We have no intention of actually – we don't have any real plan to get to net zero. So just make sure – you know, what you say in public doesn't actually commit us to doing any of these things we say we want to commit to. Also, you know, they're supporting different technologies that will supposedly solve the problems they've created. First, it was plastic recycling. Mm -hmm. Now it's like algae that's going to eat oil or whatever. And it eats, yeah, the algae that eats plastic too. Yeah. Yeah. We know that stuff was never going to work and they knew it and it was just to uh, convince people that it was okay to still consume these products. Yes. Well, now we have this big push for electric vehicles. Yep. I mean, anything that these anything that these companies don't have to be dragged into kicking and screaming, eerily not going to be a solution. So we're going to talk about uh, that and and how it should be presented in media. We're going to talk about. Uh, not the prisoner exchange everyone's kind of uh, waiting for, but a prisoner exchange that will surely please some families. Um, and John, were you aware? Did you check the New York Post this morning to see that a spider was spotted on Queen Elizabeth's casket? No, it was, a t- it was like on that. the front page. Oh, for God's sake. You yeah. know, some, there are some days that I, I'm going to pull it up right now. I, there's some days that I really love the New York Post mm-hmm. because they cover stories nobody else covers. Yeah, I and mean, who else saw that spider? Uh, <laughs> and then there are some days that the Post is such a rag that I just have to force myself through it. It has really joined in the fawning over Queen Elizabeth, unsurprisingly. Yeah, it has. Unsurprisingly, that's right. We should also say we are having a technical problem. Oh, are we? And, yeah, and so... Uh, Rumble is not up yet. I've gotten a couple of uh, texts 
from uh, regular viewers, but we're working on it. We're going to get it going. Soon. 105.5. That's right. Good. 13, Turn on the radio, 1390 folks. AM. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, um, I I did want to add a couple of uh, a couple of thoughts. Uh, there was this prisoner exchange that you mentioned a moment ago. So there was an American in uh, Afghanistan by the name of um, of Mark Frericks. Uh, he had been in Afghanistan ten years. He had previously been with the U.S. Navy. He was working with a contractor, uh, working on something like an electrical grid or something. 60 years old, and he was snatched by the Haqqani Network two years ago. They released a video of him saying, please help me, please get me out of here. Well, the Biden administration very quietly, I'm frankly surprised that this hadn't leaked, uh, very quietly had been engaged in negotiations with the Taliban. And those came to fruition overnight. And we released... Uh, Nor Bashir, I'm sorry, uh, Haji Bashir Norzai, an infamous drug lord with, with kind of a funny background. I'll get to that in a second. Um, and, uh, and this guy, uh, uh, Mark Frericks, was released by the Taliban. So he's already back. And uh, Norzai is already in Afghanistan. He did a press conference there. Norzai is kind of a funny guy because he had been a source of the CIA and the DEA and a paid source mm-hmm. of the DEA. And, uh, he was purportedly reporting on, uh, drug trafficking coming out of Afghanistan. In fact, he was Afghanistan's biggest drug trafficker. He was the, they, they call him the Pablo Escobar of Asia, right? He was, he was the largest heroin trafficker in the country. And so DEA said, hey, listen, because you've been such a good source for us, we want to invite you to New York so you can come and and meet the boss and, you know, we want to take you to dinner. He flies to New York and when he lands at Kennedy Airport, they arrest him, they charge him with international heroin trafficking and they Mm -hmm. sentence him to life without parole. Mm -hmm. He's been in for 17 years. Yeah. And then finally we traded him. You know, sorry, speaking of... Um, I forgot to mention this. I kept seeing this headline and forgetting to mention this. Did you see that Fat Leonard escaped? Yes. What? Oh my gosh. We, kept we forgot. To talk about. To... Speaking of like big time, you know, scandals, bribery, uh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know if we can recap the whole Fat Leonard <laughs> trial. He's basically he's this figure at the center. This is how Navy Times puts it at the center of one of the biggest bribery investigations in the U.S. military. Um, he, you know, was this like party dude? Yeah party dude who network got himself in in the good graces of, of a lot of powerful people and made quite a lot of money through military contracts uh that he got through kickbacks yes to summarize oh, it. Yes. basically he uh slipped off his ankle monitor and, yeah, and disappeared just and i guess they still haven't found him no and How they, the hell? they think I mean, that he's already made his way to mexico yeah and that he's going to go onward from there I mean, this is a big time. This is a big time dude in a big time case. It's sort of interesting that he just had an ankle monitor on. Anyway, I guess he was yeah. not accused of any violent offenses, but right. certainly, you know, if this is about a, a operating a, a, a sort of vast kickback and bribery network, you might think right. that this guy has some people he can call on if he's you in a think. jam. It might be a flight risk. You'd think, but I don't. You know. I don't know. So look at me. I'm Leonard flying free. (laughs) I'm a nice guy, right? I'm an honest guy. And they Mm -hmm. said I was a flight risk. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, 
But Fat Leonard, no, he's no problem. This he is can just very walk fun. Away. Maybe we should maybe we should actually allocate some time to talk about this at some point in the in the relatively near future. That would be fun. Yeah, there's a little bit of a, a little bit of me- Ukraine media drama over the weekend. Also, uh, yep. you know, once again, we some some of the areas that Wash- Russian forces have withdrawn from uh, have now uh, been. They've been accused by Ukraine of uh, leaving behind uh, mass graves. Yes. Something that is repeated that, you know, Ukrainian authorities come out and say these really terrible sounding things. Uh, and then there is an investigation and you start to see, you know, where the truth might be yes. in these accusations. But there's a pretty dramatic, you know, Reuters, Reuters put out a story about. Uh, bodies being found with their hands tied tied behind their backs. It was picked up by a bunch of other uh, organizations. And, and uh, ropes around their necks. Ropes around their necks, yeah. hands tied, yeah. picked up by Yahoo, picked up by a lot of places. It, with, it uh, withdrew the story. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't know that until you said something. So I went to the Reuters website, and and there's the withdrawal, and no explanation at all. No. None. Nothing. No. Uh, it, it's been pointed out. I mean, the thing is, it's sort of weird. Yahoo still has the headline up, but no story mm-hmm. and also no explanation. No, they no don't say like, oh, Reuters withdrew this story. There's just no text underneath it. It no. looks like a technical error. Exactly. Um, but I think what happened, what seems to have happened, because in other sort of subsequent stories, they would they said we were told this by Ukrainian officials. We didn't see our reporters did not see any evidence of it. Which again, is not to say the evidence isn't there, but they're saying, here's what we were told. Here's what we saw. Now, the Washington it, Post had a, had a piece. It was sort of a parallel piece. They didn't say anything about hands tied behind backs or mm-hmm. ropes around necks. But what they did say was that the, that the Russian military had done this grave disservice to history, not just by the fact that they apparently killed these people, but that there was no identification on any of the bodies. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be very, very difficult to figure out who they are. It's just, I think the point is that these, we saw this with Russiagate. These stories come out uh, and make a big splash. Oh, yeah. And then are withdrawn. Yes. Very, very quietly. Very quietly. The, and very the withdrawal is never on the front page. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and you're so, right. so, you know. We will, we will, again, have to wait until the smoke clears to get any kind of sense of, of what actually happened. And yes. how long that smoke is going to take to clear is pretty yes. up in the air. Um, Do you remember uh, uh, several weeks ago, maybe it was a month ago, we, we talked briefly about this very flashy pastor uh, yes. in New yes. Jersey yeah, who was, who was robbed. robbed in yeah. front of his congregation. Well, did you see he got himself in trouble again yesterday at Sunday service? Uh, he was sort of in the spirit of things, and there was a woman in the congregation who was in the spirit of things, and there was some sort of a confrontation over what he was preaching, and um, and he smacked her. Oh, no. Uh-huh. And there was a cop there yeah. who cuffed him yeah. in the middle of the service. Well, you can't hit somebody. You can't hit somebody. Uh, it was being live-streamed, and he has several thousand followers. Uh, in the end, uh, they just let him go, and the wow. woman left. Yeah. Wow. I got to start paying closer attention to this guy. I think yeah. there's some real entertainment value there. All right. I think uh, I know our next guest is on the line and I want to talk about the fallout from Joe Biden saying, sure. Yeah. U.S. troops are going to go to Taiwan if there's right. a Chinese invasion. Yeah. Terrific. So we'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, here with John Kiriakou, and we have stories all over the Asian continent, all over Eurasia to get to with our next guest. We're joined by Mark Sloboda. He's an international affairs and security analyst. Mark, thanks for being here. Michelle, John, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. We are going to start um, slightly further east with you than we usually do, because I think really one of the biggest stories of the weekend has to be Joe Biden telling CBS in a story that aired last night that, yes, U.S. troops would be sent to defend Taiwan if China were to launch an unprecedented attack on the island. That's how he phrased it. I mean, to the, the uh, his his interviewer, who I forget who it was, uh, you know, repeated the question saying, so you're just just to be clear, you're saying, unlike in the case of Ukraine, we're going to send active duty U.S. military to Taiwan. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So it is obvious by now. Uh, that Joe Biden is not doing this by accident. And every time he does it, the White House has to come out and issue a statement saying this doesn't represent a change to U.S. policy with regard to Taiwan or to U.S. policy with regard to China and insist that, you know, it doesn't contradict formal policy if you squint exactly the right way. Right. Which is really garbage, especially considering uh, with Taiwan that, that so much of, of our policy is sort of norms, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like norms and behavior and strategic ambiguity. And so I wonder I wonder what you make of the timing of Biden's statement uh, and what reaction from China you would expect. Yeah. Um, so uh, first of all, I think this is the fourth time mm-hmm. that he has said this and the White House trying to walk it back. I don't think they can seriously claim senility anymore. I, yeah. I don't I don't think this is a senile episode uh, on Biden's part. And the tactic of saying it and then uh, having other administration fizzles is obviously an orchestrated policy at this point. And this is the type of what uh, um, for U.S. policy is sometimes referred to as salami slicing tactics mm. or sometimes referred to as um uh, a, a frog in a pot being slowly set to boil. The idea being that no specific provocation on its own, uh, it, they try to present the, the, uh, the image that it is not big enough to get upset over. And if China gets upset over, it's overreacting. Mm-hmm. But every time you see another firmer, uh, further salami slice. And it's uh, basically pushing China's red lines uh, directly, inch by inch, kind of a death by inches, until uh, a few years later, China fun- suddenly finds that it has accepted things uh, uh, that it never would have in the past uh, over a period of time. Uh, and we already know that the U.S. has troops stationed in Taiwan. They're training uh, the Taiwanese military, that the U.S. supplies the uh, Taiwanese um, military with tens of billions of dollars of arms on a regular basis. Can I ask you, that- Mark, I just yeah. want to ask, is this acknowledged? Because I remember a couple years ago, there's a big uproar when it was discovered that U.S. Marines were, uh, I think it was U.S. Marines were guarding the 
it's like the it's not our it's it's the de facto embassy, right? It's the like uh, Taiwan American Institute right. or something. Right. And there was a yeah, big uproar, which is regularly referred to by the Western press as the de facto embassy. So when you say U.S. troops are there, uh, is, is this public information? Is this sort of confirmed by the United States, or is this just sort of is this you know an open secret you're talking about? No, this is this is confirmed information mm-hmm. by the United States. Um, I mean, here CBS uh, Mornings, U.S. Marines uh, are, are training Chinese troops. Uh, uh, Forty Taiwanese training with U.S. Uh, okay. It's uh, uh, regular. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, they're there. Here, U.S. troops have been deployed in Taiwan for at least a year from the Wall Street Journal Mm -hmm. uh, back in October. Uh, So this is acknowledged at this point. Ostensibly, they're there on a training mission, but of course, they're also serving as a human tripwire force. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, anyway, I mean, officially, the U.S. still maintains a fiction of the one China policy, which is that they recognize that Taiwan is part of a sovereign China and that the only legitimate government of China is in Beijing. Uh, so, but obviously in practice, they uh, it's not just that they're flouting it, right? It's that they're openly working uh, for uh, Taiwanese separatism. I mean, the, the militarily working for it, as well as the parade of U.S. officials, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi only being the most uh, flagrant uh, of them. Um, and, you know, it, again, there is the perception that they've pushed and they've pushed and they've pushed and just one little step further isn't going to make China go over the edge and uh, go to war with the United States, when previously they have said that if the U.S. abandoned the one China policy, it would be considered an act of war. Yeah. And so they keep doing this thing that, you know, is really a contradiction of this policy, a verbal contradiction of this policy. While the White House says, no, 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 all this. Look, the writing is all the same. Uh, And you do wonder, like China has lodged a formal complaint, um, but you wonder which of these slices is going to be the one that that China feels it has to react to, lest, as you say, it discovers that it has, you know, slowly over time accepted a bunch of positions that it finds intolerable. Yeah. I mean, China's not the Chinese leaders aren't leadership isn't stupid, of course. They Mm -hmm. realize what the United States is doing, but they are not yet, they do not feel completely militarily prepared for a naval conflict with the United States in the Taiwanese Straits uh, and the South China Sea. They, uh, I I believe the estimates are they believe they need another five years. Uh, After, I think, that their internal timeline on provocations has more to do with that than any, you know, being hoodwinked by the U.S. tactics. Let's also talk about uh, Western Asia, where there were concerns over the weekend that these border skirmishes between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, which are, you know, not unheard of, but were spreading and could actually boil over into an all-out war. Uh, According to Kyrgyz reports, Uh, 59 people have died. Civilians are among them. Tens of thousands of people are displaced. Both sides are blaming the other. Uh, Tensions over this border, of course, are not new. And there are accusations that, uh, you know, both sides have recently sort of militarized the border and been provoking each other. Um, But I I wonder, you know, if you think there is something to be read into the timing of this escalation, Uh, coming as it does as Armenia and Azerbaijan are in the midst of their own escalating conflict. Again, one that is not new, uh, but one that sort of dies down and then and then erupts again. Uh, Is this 
is is this just sort of uh, random? Do you have countries trying their luck while while larger powers are occupied? What do you think is going on? Yeah, so I mean, um, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan have about a thousand uh, kilometer border, about one third of which is uh, currently not agreed upon. Right. Mm-hmm. It is it has not been delimited. Uh, so um, there have been clashes before, but by and large, uh, peace has been kept uh, in the region uh, of Central Asia since, uh, uh, you know, since the early 90s, since the the uh, uh, initial uh, small war in Tajikistan about uh, about the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, there is I believe that. There is a number of frozen conflicts, um, and this, I think, could be considered a frozen conflict in the small, right? At least it's a perennial disagreement, while, of course, Armenia-Azerbaijan is a, 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 a calling it frozen. You know, say, say, it, right. it, it, Less it's, frozen. yeah, it's almost unfrozen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, there is an attempt to freeze it again that is still ongoing uh, with the, uh, the the last Russian brokered uh, ceasefire. Uh, but there's no question that um, they uh, that there is a sense, uh, whether rightly or wrongly, that Russia is weak, if if not military weak, then at least the Kremlin is not being decisive enough. And Russia is the primary security guarantor for Central Asia. Um, Of course, with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, they kind of share that responsibility with China. But the security aspect of it has largely been, uh, uh, you know, considered Russia's responsibility, while the economic aspect of it goes a little bit more towards China. Uh, That's kind of been the informal division of duties. Uh, And with Russia, again, being perceived as weak for one reason or another, you could say that the jackals are biting at the edges, or perhaps better said that when mom is away or not paying attention, the kids get up to all kinds of business, uh, you know, all kinds of mischief and start beating each other. It's yeah, I guess this case is sort of interesting to me because, of course, they share the same security guarantors, right? Economic and and military. It's a it's a little different from the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict in that way, as well as, you know, Armenia and Azerbaijan being a lot hotter all of the time. So you just kind of think, I don't know. Yeah, my my sense is that this is mostly about domestic politics and a a little bit of opportunism. uh, Sure. I mean, it's hard to see what's in it for. Yeah, it's not unusual. I mean, take a look at Greece and Turkey, both in NATO, uh, but I mean, longstanding disagreements, uh, you know, with Cyprus and other things, uh, you know, going back well, well into history or also between Turkey and Iraq, uh, where the U.S. is both the security uh, guarantor or, you know, in the case of, of Turkey, the senior NATO alliance military member for both of them. Uh, but they, uh, uh, you know, Turkey is continually occupying and conducting bombing uh, in Iraq as well. Uh, so, um, it, 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 in a perfect world, the security guarantor would, you know, uh, affect perfect security. But the reality is that you know, convoluted webs of alliances and small petty grievances uh, sometimes outweigh these things. Um, thankfully, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan have. Uh, seems to have, at least for the moment, uh, agreed to a Russian uh, brokered step 
back where they've pulled troops, uh, you know, military forces back from the border and have initiated a fact finding investigation uh, that will determine the cause of this, you know, uh, recent or is supposed to uh, this back and forth of uh, the other sides, you know, violated our border or shelled across our border, uh, whatever the, the truth of the actual origins of the incident may be. Also, I, I wondered if you can uh, tell us if there's been any response to Nancy Pelosi's jaunt to Armenia over the weekend, which I will say it has been pointed out uh, it, in a few different sources, probably had a lot to do with the domestic Armenian uh political uh, audience that she has. Yeah. I will say yeah. uh, Politico Politico has offered this headline. Pelosi's visit fires debate in Armenia over alliance with Russia. Uh, I wonder yeah. if you think it has indeed done that or, or borne any fruit at all. Yeah. So Victoria Newland's recent visit. I, I'm sorry. Did I ah. say Victoria Newland? Ah. I meant to say Nancy <laughs> Pelosi. Um, so, yeah, Nancy Pelosi's uh, recent visit here is obviously indicate, uh, you know, as is she's literally carrying a stick to poke the bear with. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you can't be any more than that. Um, she is stirring up trouble around every one of Russia's borders that she can. And obviously not only Russia's uh, China's borders as well, because she seems to think that she is the new hawk yeah. of U.S. foreign policy now that John McCain has 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 gone to wherever his justice in the afterlife takes him, shall we say. Um, um, so I, I and there's no question that uh, certainly Pashinyan was elected as a leader in Armenia. Um, uh, of course, there's lots of questions about how real these elections were, but um, that would was trying uh, to pivot Armenia towards the West more. But of course, it's it's geographical, it's geopolitical position. It is a landlocked country with uh, most of its borders surrounded by enemies, um, uh, Turkey and, and Azerbaijan. Um, and um, if it was in the middle of the Atlantic, I have uh, you know no doubt that Armenia would be applying for NATO membership now. But geography is what it is. Armenia is where it is. And th- the fact of you know, the current state of its military and economic weakness compared to Azerbaijan means that Russia and Russia's military base in Armenia is the only reason why the Armenian state, certainly within its current borders, still exists. And Pashinyan has grudgingly had to accept that reality, as well as, as the reality that uh, Russia, as well as keep maintaining its alliance with uh, Armenia, wants to maintain civil relations with Azerbaijan as well um, and has no intention of uh, allowing what it sees as petty historical and cultural grievances between the two uh, mess up its geopolitical balance in the Caucasus. And um, Aliyev uh, in Azerbaijan, again, he's conducting coercive diplomacy to prod the foot-dragging Armenian government to agree to the politically unpopular uh, ceasefire surrender conditions that he was forced to agree to, um, and is probably grabbing, a, you know, a few, a half a kilometer here, a settlement here, uh, you know, in the opportunity, because one of the big issues that is supposed to be settled with the ceasefire is finally agreeing on a border delimitation. And Aliyev is pointing out, well, 
you know, right now this border issue is gray and we can create facts on the ground uh, willy nilly. Russia's distracted elsewhere and we, you know, uh, we can press and press and press and then Russia will start leaning and then we'll say, oh, ceasefire, ceasefire, you know. Yeah. Uh, but in, 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 you know, the reality is that slightly new facts are on the ground. Um, and uh, Pashinyan, you know, as many people were uh, out cheering on the arrival of Nancy Pelosi, who is doing nothing but grandstanding and poking the bear. She can't be, the U.S. cannot be a serious guarantor. I mean, especially because Turkey, which is allied with Azerbaijan, is is part of NATO. So, you know, that gets all the more awkward between the U.S.-Turkish oh, relationship. Oh, contraire, Mark. Haven't you seen how well we've supported our Kurdish allies over the years? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I've, I've, <laughs> I, I I think I've seen some roadkill on the road that a bus has been driven back and forth over several times. Um, yeah, that that are the Kurds in various states in the region. Uh, but um, you know, um, it, Armenia's government is what it is, and um, uh, they have very little options. So they can make noise that they're unsatisfied, that they wanted Russia to go to war with Azerbaijan. And, uh, you know, Russia's quietly saying, Azerbaijan, knock it off. Armenia, do what you agreed to do. <laughs> I also want to talk, I want to talk about some of this reporting we saw over the weekend on uh, the economic consequences of the war in Ukraine for Europe. Uh, you had the New York Times drawing attention to shuttering factories in Europe. Tens of thousands of European industrial workers have been put on partial furlough, which means they are getting partial paychecks. It's not even winter yet. Yeah, it's not even winter yet. Uh, so you have a lot of people making a lot less money than they have been as energy prices continue to rise. Uh, and it was pointed out in this story, these industries are looking ahead to new energy contracts that they will need to sign in October for the coming year. They're going to be way, way higher uh, in cost than the ones that they have been sort of riding out until now. So you have that on one hand, uh, the beginning of these eco economic consequences for, for European workers uh, starting to come home. And in the Wall Street Journal, you have reports on some efforts by Europe to keep Ukraine's economy afloat by removing tariffs on European grain. That has resulted in some farmers on the continent saying their countries are being flooded with cheap Ukrainian grain and that they are suffering by uh, as a result. It's also being pointed out that this was the grain that we were told was being choked off from the hungry Middle East and Africa. Again, a lot of it seems to be going to Europe. You have farmers in Bulgaria organizing protests, uh, you know, saying, again, we got to be able to sell our own product and make a profit. Ukraine is now accusing Poland of deliberately slowing Ukrainian exports uh, at the border as a sort of, um, you know, work slow protest. Uh, the Wall Street Journal describes this as testing European solidarity. And so I wonder if you have seen any plans uh, by European nations to address this scenario uh, and, you know, how, how long this can continue. Yeah. When you say testing European solidarity, I just imagine uh, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz going into a crowd of his freezing people uh, around the beginning of January and saying, we're all in this together. Solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and uh, they're all unemployed and freezing. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't think that Olaf Schultz will be. So I, I, I think not just solidarity, uh, of course, between the states, but 
the, the issue is, that will be coming is the level of solidarity between a technocratic political elite in the EU that is obviously willing to sacrifice the uh, living standards, uh, the conditions, and in many cases, inevitably, it will be the lives of many of its citizens uh, for its, uh, you know, uh, geopolitical strategy to drag Ukraine uh, into NATO. Uh, that is has has started back in 2008, and or even before. Uh, you can take follow it all the way back to 2005, and is culminating uh, in this moment. I mean, we see. Every major steel producer in the EU is on idle right now. Um, the toilet paper manufacturers in Germany uh, have gone bankrupt because who knew? I mean, unless you're in the industry, that toilet paper is incredibly uh, manufacturing is incredibly energy intensive and so forth. And we're seeing how much exactly how much of Europe's last few decades of prosperity has been due to uh, cheap relatively cheap, reliable Russian energy. Yeah. Uh, and when that is taken away because of their own blowback from their own economic war it's waging on Russia, um, you, you see, you know, what is really more important in the world when it comes down to it, right? A, a tech, tourism, and, ser and luxury and services orientated economy uh, or a, a, a an economy based on the commodities that every country needs in order to function. You know, and in that type of battle, I think Russia is proving what is actually the more valuable uh, economy and who needs who more uh, when it comes to you know the previously existing economic relationship. You're going to see thousands of businesses, large, small, medium, all across Europe shut down. And for a lot of these industries, like steel, when they're shut down, that's it. You can't just shut down a steel factory. You mm -hmm. shut it down, it's dead. You have to rebuild the whole thing. They have to maintain a constant level of operation. And there are other industries, you know, particularly in the metals, but you know, uh, otherwise as well. Uh, and they won't be easy to start up. This is why Russian officials have referred to this as uh, Europe's suicidal self-deindustrialization. I also wanted to ask you, while we have you, Mark, uh, you know, the, the U.S., the Biden administration has managed one high-profile prisoner exchange with an official enemy, uh, not the one most of us have been watching for. But as John mentioned, we exchanged U.S. hostage Mark Frerichs, who'd been working in Afghanistan as a contractor when he was kidnapped, as John described. He was exchanged for drug lord Bashir Nurzai. Uh, Nurzai had been held for 17 years, Frerichs for about two years. Biden on Friday met with the families of Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. And so I am wondering um, if you think that this exchange perhaps bodes well for them and if you can update us at all on sort of the this, this state of negotiations such as they are between the U.S. and Russia uh, for these prisoners. Sure. I mean, it, it's pretty simple. Uh, the U.S. wanted a two-for-one deal. They wanted to get back Whalen and Greiner for Victor Bout, and Russia said no, well, one for one. And that was it. And negotiations haven't progressed any further yeah. since then. Um, so Russia even made a suggestion about um, uh, a— uh, 
um, individual being held in Germany, supposedly for the assassination of a Chechen jihadist that the West was sheltering. Um, but, um, it, you know, that that was what Russia suggested would be acceptable for them uh, as part of a two for two trade. And the U.S. walked away from that. So I mean, you have to um, wonder that's, what Biden... that's all on Joe Biden. You have to wonder what Biden said to their families yesterday or Friday. Yeah. Yeah. Solidarity. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, I think I think if I were Joe Biden or if I were in a position where I would have to be meeting these families, you can't just let them beat up on you because you're yeah. not the one who put them in prison. Yeah. You know, if this was you remember Nicholas, uh, what was his name? The U.S. News and World Report, Nick uh, Daniloff. Right. He was sort of set up by the KGB in the 80s and they snatched him and and uh, convicted him of some silly made up crime. That's not the case here. No. And while you and I certainly agree, Michelle, that that nine years is is too long a sentence for what she did. She did do something. Yeah. And so and Paul Whelan also and Paul Whelan also, yeah. you know, I, I, I'll tell no, you what, I, I when I was in I was in Syria once about 20 years ago and uh, uh, one of the guys at the embassy was an intern, this 22 year old kid got drunk and passed out and got arrested and everybody was shocked that he had been arrested. Yeah. Well, he was drunk and made a fool of himself. You don't actually travel with a, a, a cloak of uh, what is it? Yeah. Impunity around That's you right. as an American That's as right. much as you sort of think that you do for some or another. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I would just point out that in, in the case of Griner, there are Americans serving harsher prison sentences sure. for lesser drug related crimes in the United States than than Griner has, who just don't happen to be famous basketball stars. And, which and second Biden of all, campaigned on changing. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Also, I mean, this is clearly political. It is uh, retaliation. It is a direct response to the U.S. policy of uh, arresting, charging, and seeking to judge Russian citizens, not even in the United States, but deliberately hunting them down around the world and getting other countries to extradite them to the United States, often specifically being hunted for, because, of course, the U.S. and Russia do not have an extradition agreement. And so this is just another case of blowback. You do this, and Russia, of course, is going to reply. Mm -hmm. And if the U.S. hadn't been hunting down Victor Bout and, and other Russians around the world for crimes they themselves are far more guilty of, arms trade, uh, then there is no doubt to me that uh, Paul Whelan and uh, uh, Greiner would already be at home if they were, you know, uh, it, you know, ever, uh, you know, seriously detained in in, in the first place. That was Mark Sloboda, International Affairs and Security Analyst. Mark, thanks so much, as always, for joining us. Thanks for having me. John, I know our next guest is on the line, and I know you've got a lot to ask. Or you want to just skip this break and yeah. get straight into it? Yeah, let's skip this break. All right. That sounds like a good, good idea. Well, negotiations between Iran and the United States to reestablish the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, entered their final phase on Friday. An Iranian spokesman first said that the only remaining sticking point was his country's insistence that the United States commit to remain in the agreement. Donald Trump famously or infamously withdrew from the JCPOA within weeks of becoming president. The Iranians just don't want to risk that happening again. 
But Secretary of State Tony Blinken said that he thought a deal was unlikely, that was the word he used, because the Iranians won't agree to an inspection regime by IAEA inspectors. Israel's interim prime minister, meanwhile, Yair Lapid, on Friday condemned what little progress there has been in negotiations and said that it's not too late for the U.S. to quit. Meanwhile, protests in Iran grew on Sunday and hashtag Mahsa Amina became the top Farsi language hashtag ever as Iranians demanded accountability for the death of the young woman arrested by the morality police last week for not wearing a head covering. Maksa Amina was arrested last week for allowing her hair, the, yeah. the front of her hair, to show in public. The friends with whom she was with say that the morality p- uh, police beat her as she was being put into a police car. She went into a coma at the police station and died later in the afternoon. She was 22 years old. Iranian officials, for their part, say that she, quote, fell ill at the police station and died of a heart attack, unquote. We're joined by Ariel Gold. Ariel is executive director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. That is the oldest peace and justice organization in the United States. I'm I'm very impressed every time yeah. I I hear that. Ariel, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. And I should say I, I'm always impressed by it as well. <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us. And let's start with the JCPOA. First, these negotiations have not been direct. They've been hosted by the European Union. We talk to the EU, then the EU talks to the Iranians, the Iranians talk to the EU, and then the EU talks to us. And that's how these messages and positions are passed between the two sides. It's it's very childish, I think. So there's there's not even enough goodwill for direct talks. These talks have been dragging on for over a year. And even though we've entered into what is being called, I guess, by the media, the final phase, nobody seems to be optimistic. Do you think an agreement is possible, given what we've heard from each side so far? Well, it's, it's unlikely. Um, you know, I certainly don't want to give up hope. And, um, you know, one glimmer of, of hope is that um, Ron, and I, I believe that it came out yesterday, uh, has said that they see the possibility of talks taking place during the U.N. Assembly in New York. Uh-huh. So, you know, I would certainly love that to take place. And the real reason for um, for a lack of hope on this is, uh, you know, at least on our end, right? We have to look at our end yeah. We're here in the United States, is the horrific failure of the Biden administration to get back into the JCPOA on week one of coming into office. I mean, Donald Trump's pulling out of this deal was egregious, and the Iranians certainly have reason not to trust us and certainly have reason not to have that that amount of goodwill. And since it was us that pulled out of the deal and us that imposed crippling sanctions, sanctions so severe that essential medicine can't get into the country, life-saving medications, um, it was our responsibility to rebuild that goodwill, mm-hmm. make a goodwill gesture, right? get back into the deal right away. And on week one, at least some degree of sanctions should have been lifted immediately to show good faith. I, I agree with that completely. There seem to be two genuine sticking points here. The Iranians don't trust us to remain in the deal. I don't trust us to remain in the deal. Uh, and the U.S. doesn't trust the Iranians to allow honest nuclear inspections. 
Um, I want to ask you if you think these positions are deal breakers, but I also want your thoughts on these inspections. The Iranians were always in agreement on inspections. This was exactly the same inspections regime that the United Nations used through the IAEA with Iraq. And this is when the JCPOA was initially in, uh, in effect. There was no problem with inspections. Why all of a sudden is there an issue? To what Iran is, you know, going about right now with um, not wanting, in, not letting inspections in. But I can say that by all measures, Iran was in complete compliance yeah. with the deal when we had it. So I certainly don't think that's a deal breaker. It's, I, I would guess that it's more of a negotiating tool. But the one thing that I would point to, and this goes back to Biden's failure, whether it was laziness or whatever it was, to get back into the deal immediately, which was something he ran on, um, that helped uh, embolden the hardliners in Iran. And so then the clock was ticking until the Iranian election. And so then we have seen a much more right-wing, much more repressive, much more hardline Iranian administration, the right administration. So that as well could be behind this sticking point. And again, that um, that rests with Biden's failure. Yeah. Um, if there isn't a deal, Ariel, what do you think it means for the other countries in the P5 plus one? That's that's China, France, Russia, Germany, and the UK that are all still signatories to the JCPOA. You know, this is something that seems to have confounded uh, uh, the other members of the P5 plus one, just because the United States withdrew didn't mean that the, the whole deal was dead. Every one of these countries had legitimate uh, uh, trade relations with Iran. So what happens now if the U.S. and Iran decide to walk back to their respective corners without a deal? What does it mean for the rest of these countries? Yeah, I have to say that uh, I don't agree that it that it just works that simply because the way the U.S. sanctions uh. are are written and applied, they prevent other countries from doing business with Iran. Yeah, that's a good point. Even if even if the other countries technically remain in the deal, in actuality, they can't do business with Iran. And, and, and I want to give an example. So the sanctions have prevented life saving medicine from getting into the country. And at the same time, the way the sanctions are written, life-saving medications, human humanitarian things, food, medications, are exempted from sanctions. But in reality, in practice, these sanctions are so complicated and such a web and a convoluted mess of them that countries are too afraid to do business with Iran because they can end up in the mix of the U.S. sanctions. Even though we have a sub, you know a situation as simple as medicine getting into the country, COVID aid, um, treatment for for uh, child leukemia, um, in actuality the sanctions do affect that. So regardless of whether the other countries want to do business with Iran, the U.S. is preventing it. Yeah, that seems to be really the the crux of this whole thing. Is the United States is constantly passing. Uh, new laws or implementing new sanctions that sanction even our friends. I remember when we first pulled out of the JCPOA, there was talk that we were going to have to sanction the UK and sanction Germany, and it was going to just put our trade relations in, into a death spiral. Um, I want to ask you also about, about this young woman, Masa Amina. She was a 22-year-old Kurdish woman 
arrested for not having her hair covered. There are other reports saying that she she took off her hijab as part of a protest. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but uh, the, the morality police, which the Iranians have like the Saudis have, uh, arrested her and they apparently beat her to death. This beating took place uh, in part in front of her friends and word spread quickly. Riots broke out in the Tehran suburbs and in several Kurdish cities. Uh, Reuters said that tens of thousands of people participated in demonstrations over the weekend and thousands had posted videos on Twitter of the morality police abusing citizens. Uh, it, it seems like it's coming to a head like it came to a head in Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago. Um, even several newspapers have urged Supreme Leader Khamenei to launch an investigation. So my question is, where does this go from here? Is this some sort of a tipping point or is this an isolated incident that uh, is just going to go away? I wouldn't call it an isolated incident. The women's rights movement in Iran, which this is part of, has been growing and growing for years and will continue regardless of the morality police and regardless of whether or not we get back into the JCPOA. I mean, this is a movement for human rights, and, and it will continue. And, in fact, her funeral was filled with women purposefully taking off their job in solidarity wow. and remembrance of her. Now, I also want to bring, and, and, and let's not mince words, this is appalling and atrocious, um, the, you know, it, it beyond, right? It is. I also recognize, I have to go back to the United States, because I live here in the United States, and um, like I said, the U.S. emboldens the hardliners in Iran through U.S. sanctions, because U.S. sanctions never work, right? Never. <laughs> never. Whether it's Cuba, whether it's Russia right now, whether it's, uh, we have on South Sudan, where the Fellowship of Reconciliation will be heading in November, they never work. What sanctions do do is they incite nationalism. That's right. And that's what happened, and it emboldens the hardliners, and so that's what we saw in Iran, and then we saw Ricey win the election. And in recent years, you know, again, we're going before um, Ricey came into power, Iranian authorities, there was the appearance that uh, some of the enforcement of the mandatory hijab laws uh, were being a bit relaxed. Yes. There, right before COVID in the fall of 2019. And, and so many people, and including me, because I just, I get kind of claustrophobic with things around my neck and <laughs> in the winter, you know, we're just kind of pin it to the back of their head. Right. And uh, that was kind of, you know, accepted a bit. And Iranian women have been challenging this for decades through various forms of protest. But um, the conservative government, led by Ricey, has taken several recent steps to ramp up the enforcement of this draconian un law and um, to unleash the morality police on Iranian women. So this appears to have been a key factor in, in her death. So while we, while we mourn her death, while we demand women's rights, while we demand human rights for all people, while we while we ask Iran to hold the perpetrators of this murder accountable and retract its orders targeting Iranian women's attire, we have to look here at the U.S. and how we are either contributing to something or, or helping um, spread human rights. And the best thing that we can do to support the women of Iran is practice diplomacy, remove sanctions, and get back into the JCP. 
I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Sanctions, you're exactly right. Sanctions lead to nationalism because people pull together when they're being attacked from the outside, including when those attacks are economic in nature. I want to add, too, that Supreme Leader Khamenei issued a statement two years ago condemning the George Floyd uh, murder, but he has yet to say anything about Mahsa Amina. Uh, That's not lost on Iranians, and a lot of them are tweeting about this today. Do Do you see any actual liberalization of laws around women's rights coming out of this? Because I I think you're right that this is part of a movement. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this movement has been going on for decades and it's not going anywhere until these rights are achieved, just like human rights movements in in, in every country. Yes. Just like you, you mentioned Saudi Arabia, women are going to campaign for human rights and are going to make sacrifices and are going to protest. And, you know, that's what's happening. And if we want to support them in America, then we need to call for our government to lift sanctions because that's the best that we can do to help the women of that country. Uh, You know, we also see under sanctions that civil society, including women's rights groups, um, are being shut down or experiencing far more repression. These are, again, the effects of sanctions. Right? It impacts the worst, it impacts civil society in the worst way. So if we want to support these women, it's not just about statements saying condemning um, the, the mandatory hijab laws, which we should condemn because they're atrocious. But it's about doing the things that actually help civil society. Yep. And, you know, the way we do that is the practices of our government and um, how we carry that out. And, you know, I am so excited to watch, to be witness, so I don't read Farsi, but to be witness to um, Iranian social media movements. Agreed. This is just a new a new tool that um, it is. defenders have found and are using uh, to the best of their abilities, because Iranian human rights defenders, like human rights defenders, everywhere. Yep, everywhere. I'm sorry that I have to I have to end it there. We are out of time. That was the voice of Ariel Gold. She's executive director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. That's the oldest peace and justice organization in the U.S. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back with our second hour. and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. The Pentagon has ordered what it's calling a sweeping audit of how it conducts clandestine information warfare after major social media platforms identified as fake and then took down more than 150 accounts suspected of being run by the U.S. military. Undersecretary of Defense for Policy Colin Call ordered, com- uh, ordered commands to account for their information operations programs by the end of the month. According to Internet researchers Graphica and the Stanford Internet Observatory, most of the accounts were being run by CENTCOM, the Central Command, which has U.S. military jurisdiction over the Middle East and Central Asia. Even more interesting is that it appears that none of the accounts gained any traction, with the Pentagon's official Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram feeds being far more influential. 
The, the New York Times published a major story over the weekend saying that it was Russian Twitter trolls who disrupted the Women's March here in the United States in 2017 and caused a rift on the American political left, and that this operation was something that that the Russian government and the Soviet government before them uh, have been doing in the United States since the 1960s. But there's one problem. The Times timeline is wrong. Linda Sarsour was already a target from the MAGA wing of the Republican Party when she took on leadership of the march, and their engagement against her was far more powerful. Finally, a federal judge ruled on Thursday that the Senate does not have to release the CIA torture report despite the fact that the report documents criminal activity. Chief Judge Beryl Howell, who is an Obama appointee and is usually pretty good on issues like these, uh, said that the torture report does not qualify as a public record because Congress exempted itself from the Freedom of Information Act. There is now no clear path for the torture report to ever be made public. We're joined by Kevin Gastala. He's a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. Welcome back, Kevin. Hey, it's good to be with you both again. Good to have you. Let's start with this Pentagon propaganda. We've talked about Pentagon propaganda a couple of times oh, yeah. on the show, more than a couple of times. The Pentagon has been engaging in this kind of propaganda for many, many years. What's new, though, is the use of American social media platforms and the fact that the Pentagon can legally propagandize the American people, which it's been able to do since the Obama administration. But it seems that they've been caught. So do you see any changes coming out of this? Can oh, I, and Michelle's got a follow. I just want to say that hovering over all of this is that Newsweek report from about a year ago about the the massive secret online army that I, I remember, remember, John, you were, you were pretty dismissive of. Yeah. Uh, but like this sort of hovering over all of this, that like yeah. maybe maybe they've been at this for a while. Yeah. And they're not good at it, apparently. No one <laughs> is, it seems, right? Nobody actually is. <laughs> Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah. So just let me give my quick disclaimer for the disinformation fellows out there. I'm doing this independently. I want to talk with both of you on your show. I'm not being paid by anyone to say what I'm about to say. That's right. So um, uh, this this is really a fascinating report that the Washington Post put together, particularly if you look at the, um, in my view, if you look at the stuff that's at the bottom of the article, um, and if you work your way back, um, it, you know it's it's interesting to me that uh, they seem to be pointing to the fact that they're just wasting a lot of funds and resources on this and not accomplishing much. Right. Uh, it says right. here is it, one person who spoke to the post: "Is the juice worth the squeeze? Does our approach really have the potential for the return on investment we hoped, or is it just causing more challenges?" Um, and in fact, it says that the vast majority of posts and tweets reviewed received more than a no more than a handful of likes or retweets, and only 19% of the concocted accounts had more than a thousand followers. Tellingly, the two most followed assets in the data provided by Twitter um, were overt accounts that publicly declared a connection to the U.S. military. <laughs> so they're actually doing better. When they tell people they're affiliated with CENTCOM or they're affiliated with right. the U.S. military. Right. Um, and then what I thought was interesting is uh, without really saying what exactly they're trying to do, uh, the Washington Post seems to point us in that direction. 
like it almost sounds like the Washington Post went fishing for examples, which they should do if there were good reporters, but they didn't get anything. But they know enough that they pointed us to psychological operations to promote U.S. narratives overseas is nothing new. Uh, the popularity of Western social media across the globe has led to an expansion of tactics. But then they specifically say deep fakes. So they say that Af like you could take an Afghan woman or an Iranian student and you could pretend to be that person and then push U.S. government propaganda through that account. So that seems to be specifically what Central Command is doing with this with, with these accounts. And then I love that the State Department and CIA are actually upset by what the Pentagon is doing because turf wars and exactly says, Hey, Hey, don't amplify our policies using fake personas because we don't want to be seen as creating false grassroots efforts. And, uh, it's just, uh, the, there are other things I want to throw into the mix, but I know both of you probably want to react to that. But the, the, the things that are really eye catching to me about the story are actually buried at the bottom of the Washington post report. Yeah. I, I find that to be, uh, the case quite often. And you're exactly right about, about a turf war. Um, the CIA hates it that the Pentagon is involved in this so-called information warfare. I've mentioned on the show in the past, and I'll, I'll uh, repeat myself here. The last time I was in Yemen, I, I met with the, uh, the U.S. defense attache uh, at the embassy in Sana'a. This is back in 2011, I guess it was. And he was so proud of this information warfare program that he was running there where they had purchased time on a local Yemeni radio station and they tried to model a program after NPR that was geared toward um, Yemeni young people, teenagers and people in their 20s. Uh it was supposed to be some kind of a talk show and then they'd play a little bit of jazz and then they would say how much they love the United States. And, and it was this like ham fisted attempt to, to trick young people with the use of jazz um, into loving the United States. And I, I couldn't, I, I actually laughed when he told me about it. And uh, I, I couldn't imagine at the time a, a grander waste of the taxpayers money than something like that. But the guy was quite proud of it. I don't know whatever happened to it. It's probably being audited in this program right now. Yeah. Well, it, you know, uh, it, it's a little bit different, but it brings to mind Cuban Twitter and how much of a, a total fail and debacle that was for USAID yeah. when they got involved with it. But anyway, back to this. So I also think it's worth pointing out that Voice of America, Farsi, and Radio Free Europe are apparently involved or connected to this information warfare. And uh, that's really worth noting, particularly on, uh, on Sputnik, because constantly we are led to believe that these, uh, these U.S.-funded, these state-funded media organizations function completely differently than any state-funded media, whether it be in Russia or China, and that they are not part of any uh, agendas or any efforts to advance U.S. foreign policy, when in fact we all know that is completely false. And, and that they, they are, all the reporters there may have independence, but they are working for state-funded media. Now, the other thing I want to say is the way that the Pentagon got to be able to do this and why it upsets the CIA is because actually Congress in 2019, I didn't know this, 
I actually did not remember that this had happened or I never saw that this had happened. Apparently passed a law that gave the U.S. military permission to be involved in these operations against foreign disinformation, as they call it. And um, it was called Section 1631. They basically told them they could do clandestine psychological operations um, as long as they didn't go into any areas that the CIA were currently, which the thing that I don't understand when I read this article is how either of these agencies knows what the other is yeah. doing and that they're not Good like question. propagandizing each other. We all famously know the the headlines about the, the arms support to groups in Syria, right? Mm-hmm. And how the Pentagon was giving uh, weapons to some groups and then the CIA was giving weapons to some groups, and those groups were actually fighting each other on the battlefield. That's just grand. But that happens all the time. There's no way we can trust the Pentagon to to do an internal audit of classified propaganda programs, right? I'm trying to look at this from a bunch of different angles, but it just seems crazy to me. Yeah, I wouldn't trust them anymore to do a full audit than I would to... Uh, do a review of their policies on uh, killing or capturing people in, uh, well, they declare the entire world a battlefield, but um, I wouldn't trust them to, when they're trying to minimize civilian casualties, I wouldn't trust them to, when they're investigating alleged war crimes, I wouldn't trust them to, simply because they don't believe that there's any like systemic problem to all of this. It says in the article that the people who are speaking on this just think there was like miscommunication problems of people um, not understanding what they were allowed to do. So again, we're back to that few bad apples Mm -hmm. that uh, it's, it's never, it's never the program. It's never the, the entire uh, chain of command being involved in something that is a problem. It's uh, if we could just, you know, replace Tom and have Harry do the job instead, it's going to be just fine. I think the actual line in the story is uh, when fictitious information was pushed by the military, it was the result of inadequate oversight of contractors. Oh, yeah. Yes, the of contractors course. Fault. It's the contractor's fault. Yep. The contractors. We'll just, have to, we'll just have to have somebody else do it. Right. Then it'll be okay. So in the end, what do you think... A- the point is of a program like that. Is it just to instill this love of the U S military overseas? I I just can't fathom what the point of a program like this is. So quickly, I I think the fact that they got caught is why it's a problem. I think otherwise the U S military would tell you that there wasn't anything wrong with what they were doing. But if you look in the post story, why they're embarrassed is if Facebook was able to tell that they were fakes, then so can people in the adversarial countries yeah. that we are challenging. And so it's a terrible program. Like the people who are doing it have bad trade craft is what is coming through this article. And so, yeah, you're right. What is, what is the, what are we to getting out of this? I don't think we're getting anything. And in, and in fact, the conclusion of the story without the reporter saying so, because they're not editorializing right. is that it's better for the U.S. government through the State Department or uh, maybe uh, the Biden White House or or any others to just say clearly what they want other countries to be doing and make those positions known and not try to covertly push them through sock puppet accounts. Very good point. 
Let's talk about this New York Times article over the weekend, too. The Times alleges that it was a Russian troll farm that wrecked the, the Women's March and the reputation of Linda Sarsour. And just like the Times reporting about the run-up to the 2016 election, the numbers of retweets and engagements just aren't there. Why report on something like this when the reporting can be debunked? Well, for one, it's about media culture, in my opinion, because there are a lot of colleagues in the profession in, in, in U.S. media that are still uh, trapped in their little Trump bubble, and they're continuing mm-hmm. to do and generate stories based upon um, the, the set of official American enemies that they have before them. And so this this is a juicy story to them, and they're still going from the template that they had in 2016. I recognize that we have this war in Ukraine, and so it, it changes a, a little bit. And, and so whenever something like that is happening, you know, NATO's countering Russia, there's a lot of added incentive to look at what alleged information operations may be coming from uh, the Russian government. But, you know, as you're, as you're saying— um, there's not a lot to this, right? And yet, and yet, the headlines are going to splash this all over. They're going to say, oh, "Panic, panic!" Uh, and uh, the people who were targeted, I think, in, inappropriately, are made to feel like they're the victims or that they survived some kind of Russian information operation. When in fact, the truth and the reality is, because I remember this, I actually think I couldn't find my particular tweet before I came on here, but. I'm pretty sure I tweeted at some point, I stand with Linda or I march with Linda because I could see what was happening and it was ugly. What was happening to her was very ugly. And um, she was being called by conservative websites. That's anti-Semite. She was being called, um, uh, you know, they were, they were pumping all this anti-Muslim racism against her. Um, And of course she's always drawn that in the entire time that I've known her for and followed the stuff that she's done as an advocate over the last decade because she wears the hijab. She always gets attacked in public. Um, she was in, aligned with Bernie Sanders, which doesn't help either. That helps um, attract more attention from conservatives, I think. And, you know, I mean, I just will point out that like outlets on the progress in the progressive media, like color lines, were tracking the trends on Twitter. And there was plenty of vitriol coming from conservatives. And so, again, this is very similar to the story we just discussed about the Pentagon, because it doesn't amount to much. So even if the Russian intelligence or any agency or any group that you could loosely connect to Russian intelligence was involved in this, they did not accomplish anything. And I think what it comes down to is what you see is these like agencies that are either spy agencies or government agencies or loosely connected cutout projects or whatever they are, are trying to just glom onto trends on the internet and amplify. And you, and they're sort of like using those trends as a way to um, shield them or um, uh, give them a veil so that they're not found out. Because if they start the trend, then we're going to be able to tell that it originated with a government. But if you hop on it and try to add to it, then you can further um, it. And so it seems like that's one thing that the media has never recognized, uh, generally speaking, the establishment media, when they have covered these uh, stories of alleged Russian information operations. What they never say openly is that 
they're not creating new rifts in our population. They're taking advantage of real and actual ones that are going to be there regardless of whether agents of Russia or China or Iran or any other place get involved. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. Uh, you know, I remember when when Brian uh, Becker and I were doing a, a show here on on Sputnik, we, and we had you on the show talking about this issue. Brian was able to break down exactly um, what what money was spent by so-called Russian trolls in what states for what purposes on Facebook and Twitter. And I remember it came down to $50,000. Half of the money was spent after the election was over. And most of the remaining 25,000 was spent in states that were, that were deeply red or deeply blue with the bottom line being it had the money had no effect whatsoever on the election. And I get the same vibe here. Uh, let's say that uh, that some of these uh, these accusations are true, that there was a Russian troll farm and that they tweeted about Linda Sarsour. First of all, who's reading these tweets? We don't know. Nobody. Almost nobody. Right. None of them had more than a thousand followers anyway. And, um, and what impact did it have? It's, it's, it's impossible to even determine something like that. But the more important thing is that even before they began tweeting about Linda Sarsour, the MAGA people were yelling about Linda Sarsour. The MAGA people were protesting her speech at Harvard university and harassing her at her home and making fun of her hijab and doing all the things that they do. So now for the New Mm -hmm. York Times to come out and say, oh, my God, it was the Russians. The Russians targeted Linda Sarsour. Oh, my God, they were tweeting about her. Come on. There's no one in the United States also. I mean, you're talking about the MAGA Republicans. It was also uh, opponents of BDS, right? Exactly right. Mm -hmm. It was also opponents of BDS. Nowhere else in the United States has there been an enormous overreaction to attempting to boycott Israel with, you know, laws being passed in different states uh, trying to ensure citizens are not allowed to do that. Yeah. No, it has to. It's always Russia. It is well, always and it, Russia. And I'm glad that you raised I ra- I'm glad that you raised uh, the Israeli lobby or the any groups that are aligned that are upset about BDS, because we're seeing an unprecedented amount of money pouring into primary races to make sure that Democrats who have even said anything that could be construed as critical of the Israeli government are not reelected or not elected in these primaries. And they're also these groups are using that as like a wedge issue to uh, well, they're they're just deploying dollars into races and actually meddling in campaigns. But we we don't see the same level of rage about that that we see about these like very minimal operations that did not amount to anything again like you're saying nobody lost their election because of this mm. nobody that i know lost their job because of this and a lot of it already existed before i mean i and i'm well, I was also saying things say, that but sorry kevin i know we don't we have two other things to talk about but i was also going to say when you talk about political consequences look at what's happened in the uk with the labor party yeah if you want to talk yeah, about political point. consequences the purge of that party to get rid of you know supp- supposed anti-semites and also uh, 
uh, you know, uh, serendipitously, they would have us believe uh, anti-war voices has, you know, will will have huge impacts on British politics going forward. But I do not see The New York Times you know, dedicating any investigative power to that program and those ramifications. Sorry, Kevin, I know I interrupted you. No, no, it's fine. I, I just one last quick thing I was going to just say is that the they were going on about alleged connections and um, alliances that may have existed between chairs with Louis Farrakhan. Right, okay, like, right. You don't need any other thing. Like the conservatives know how to make you miserable. That's a that's a good yeah. point. And I had forgotten about Louis Farrakhan too. Yeah, you don't need anything else. If you want to make a criticism, it seems like outlets too are our news outlets are so quick to jump on the on the bandwagon, the Russia bashing bandwagon sometimes that they become careless. And over the weekend, Reuters was forced to withdraw a story where they said that bodies were found in Ukraine with their hands tied behind their backs with ropes around their necks. No such thing happened. And Reuters withdrew the story without any comment. What do you make of this? Yeah, um, you know, I don't I don't I don't know about this particular example so much, but let me just give a general comment, because uh, the fact is that it has been really hard to do your job as a reporter on. I'll just take Twitter specifically, OK, to respond to reports that are coming out of Ukraine, um, if they're coming from Ukraine officials or um, let's say Russian officials to commenting, you know, it's hard to tell who has it right when uh, I'm just going to use a vague euphemism of like the fog of war, because the fact is that people who are trying to assess what is really happening on the ground have a difficult time, because if you are not thinking that Russia committed the most evil, then you, you don't know if your your tweet's going to be up the next day or if Twitter's going to flag it because you are going to be accused of being an apologist. Uh, same goes for Ukraine. If you don't believe everything that their officials have to say, if you say they're lying, if you suggest that they're trying to manipulate people, well, then you might find that you're being censored as well. And it's very difficult, I think, to strive for accuracy. And I think long, long ago, outlets like Reuters gave up on it. It's kind of stunning that they would be in the position where they had to retract. It tells you that it's just so egregious. Kevin, uh, tell us a little bit about this court decision in the District Court for the District of Columbia regarding the Senate torture report. A journalist filed a suit arguing that the report should be made public because it's a congressional document. But the judge disagreed, and it seems like the torture report will now never be made public unless somebody leaks it, which is unlikely. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so um, Sean Musgrave was behind this. He's with Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, a good organization. Also, Kel McClanahan was his lawyer on this. Um, I think he does some decent work on uh, some of this stuff. And uh, I mean, basically, there's two things that should be said really quickly. So Obama could have ensured that we had a public torture report, all 6,000 pages. All he would have had to do was not uh, not not play this game where it's a congressional document and not an executive branch document. That's right. If if somehow he had found a way to make it a record uh, of the White House or a record in some executive branch agency, uh, then 
that would have been the nail in the coffin for a lot of the problems that we're seeing because what they're doing is they're saying since Congress controls the torture report, it's not public record. Right. So actually the issue isn't even classification at this point. So far, what they've been able to do, and I guess they is the CIA in order to conceal the rest of the contents is take advantage of the fact that Burr, uh, Richard Burr, when he was the intelligence committee chair under Trump, clawed back this document from the Trump White House and put it into congressional custody. And so now the public can never read it. And that I think that's really terrible because it is a public record. And what what Sean was citing was that we have a common law right of access. And for this type of public record, we should see it. I think yes. it's a shame that the judge is going along with this. You know, at the time, too, at, at the time that it or just after it came out, uh, as we approached uh, the election or we had the election, we entered this lame duck period. There was some hope that that one or two senators might have the guts to actually uh, uh, release it. In fact, I, I remember people really pinning their hopes on Senator Udall of uh, Colorado. And, uh, you know, when he got up to give his his final speech during that lame duck session, it turned out to be about some minor education point rather than to at least, you know, read parts of it into the record or or. You know, we were hoping he would he would actually submit it to the record as a congressional document, as an unclassified congressional document. It just never happened. You know, you you look back at at Mike Gravel, the the Democratic senator from Alaska in the 1970s, who did release the Pentagon Papers um, into the congressional record, and uh, that kind of bravery just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it doesn't. If I just quickly say that Gravel and Beacon Press were hounded for what they had done oh, yeah. uh, subject to grand jury subpoenas. Uh, there was an investigation. They tried to stop beacon press from publishing the Pentagon papers in book form. And I think maybe that's probably what you'd all was a fearful of. Um, and so uh, unfortunately uh, there's a whole lot in that torture report that the CIA will be able to continue to keep concealed. Yeah. And again, even if we defeat the congressional issue of like who has it in their custody, there's then the classified information. There's then the sources and methods. And you know more than anyone how hard that uh, Everest mountain is to climb. That's exactly what it is. Kevin Gastala, thank you so much for joining us. Kevin is a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. But before you leave, give us the very, very latest on your book. When can we buy it? Oh, sure. Uh, it's going to be available on February 21st, 2023. I should have a pre-order link that I'll be sharing by November. So Excellent. I'm really excited. Thank Excellent. You. Congratulations. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. And I wanted to talk about some of this news that came out during congressional hearings last week on the role of fossil fuels in driving climate change. 
Congress made public some of the internal communications by BP, Shell, Chevron, Exxon, all of our friends. Uh, and these documents show that despite public statements of support for things like the Paris Climate Agreement and despite public promises to work toward net zero emissions and certain timelines, uh, internally, these companies were constantly working to make sure none of those statements represented anything actually binding, because, of course, they were in reality not at all interested in uh, putting together any kind of workable time frame for achieving net zero emissions. Uh, so they would they would publicly tout different solutions that they were supposedly funding to help curb emissions or speed the transition to renewable fuels, while internally discussing how those solutions were nowhere near implementation and not very important, and confirming their intent to continue pumping oil for decades. This, of course, follows revelations that plastic recycling was the same kind of sham, right? A, a quote-unquote solution promoted by oil companies to encourage people to use petroleum-derived plastic. Uh, none of this is news. I don't think we need further proof of it. Um, and I think it is interesting to look at this in a context of this, this push to buy electric vehicles as some kind of significant climate solution. And so I wanted to talk about, you know, the 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 real energy requirements of electric vehicles and, you know, why we we seem to sort of disregard this history of fossil fuel companies to sort of push solutions that aren't really solutions when a new solution comes along. And so joining us for this conversation is Max Wilbert. He's an organizer, writer, and author of the book Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. Thanks for being here, Max. So glad to be with you again. So, you know, the thing is, it is not like media in the West ignore uh, they they haven't ignored these um, internal documents from these oil companies that have been released by Congress. Uh, you know, they, they were all over the uh, plastic recycling revelations that I think we had a, about a year and a half ago. But what frustrates me is the stories stop there, right? And I think there's a political link in this chain that is very important, right? We by now know very well the nature of the fossil fuel industry. You do not need any more evidence. I think that uh, they have no intention of being anything other than the beasts they have always been, which is, you know, pumping oil, making as much money for their shareholders as they possibly can, and trying to avoid responsibility for the environmental damage. Um, I want to know what you think responsible reporting on these disclosures would look like, because I think what gets lost here is their contributions to our political ecosystem and the way that ecosystem sort of publicly scolds them from time to time, but allows them to keep working. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that so much of this issue really comes down to a lack of political vision. And that's always been the case in the media, that you don't have much political vision, that there's uh, a lot of momentum behind maintaining the status quo. That's what people are used to. But this time that we're living in with this unprecedented climate crisis, the sixth mass extinction of life on Earth, the plastic pollution uh, and chemical toxification of the water, the soil, the air, all over the entire planet, even in the most remote wildernesses, all of these issues are pushing us as uh, as a society, as a world, as a species to 
go further to try and recognize that these issues have identifiable roots. They come from specific forms of social organization, culture, economics, and so on, and that we need to address those. And, you know, with a few very rare exceptions, we aren't seeing the media doing that. They're just sort of telling the easy stories that are going to, you know, get them clicks and boost their advertising revenue. By and large, of course, there are exceptions to that, uh, which are worth praising. But by and large, um, I think the media has been derelict, just like the government has been derelict. And now I think, you know, I think we have to bring electric vehicles now into this conversation. Uh, Yahoo last week did a story attempting to understand just how much electricity the United States would need to produce if we do all transition to electric vehicles and therefore, uh, you know, stop climate catastrophe. Uh, The story noted that during California's heat wave earlier this month, the state asked electric vehicle owners not to charge their cars. And this sort of drew some attention to, you know, the, the kind of power we would need to generate if we're all plugging our cars into the same grid. Apparently, a Department of Energy study found that the U.S. would need to create about 40 percent more power than it currently does by 2050 to power this kind of switch. Other researchers say we're going to have to have twice as much energy or more. And if we are to do that without burning more oil and gas, we'll have to seriously expand our wind and solar capacity. We'll have to basically remake our entire electrical grid. And, you know, this story was a sort of... um, clearinghouse of analysis, right? So it also included people saying, oh, no, you know, this is a problem that can be solved. You you don't need to worry about it. This is sort of uh, fear-mongering. But, you know, uh, I don't see uh, Exxon or Chevron or BP agitating against electric vehicles, which I think should make us very suspicious of them as some kind of major solution. And so I wonder, one, could we even possibly do this with the uh, electricity that we are currently able to produce? Or is this just another like sort of pie in the sky climate solution? Well, frankly, I think it's more pie in the sky. And I say that as an environmentalist, I say that as somebody who, uh, you know, went to uh, the Arctic with a group of climate scientists conducting research up there in 2010. You know, I've walked on thawing permafrost, seen entire forests, falling over because the soil's destabilizing under them. You know, I've held mammoth tusks melting out of the Siberian tundra um, because of this unprecedented climate change that's a real crisis and a real threat. And at the same time, these companies are in it for money, right? There's th- that is their primary motivation. And so if you look at the reality of the situation, I'm looking right now at the International Energy Agency's website and their most recent data from 2019 shows that electricity is about 20% of energy use and about 80% comes from oil gas coal that's not used for uh, electricity that's used for for direct heating purposes and so on uh, biofuels and a few other sources so 80% of our energy is not in the form of electricity and a lot of that is is going into vehicle electric is going into gasoline power musical vehicles diesel vehicles and so on so transitioning the entire world to be powered by electricity this modern industrial economy is going to involve huge amounts of destruction to the natural world and that's not to say that the fossil fuel industry isn't currently doing that as well but this would be a, a different type of destruction it would be shifting it to different different areas 
frankly, as a grassroots environmentalist who, you know, my allegiance is really to the land, to the creatures who live here, to the forest, to the oceans, to the rivers, um, to the to the songbirds, to all of those beings around us, uh, you know, I can't support either one of those, frankly. And of course, this just is sort of building toward uh, a theme that we have come back to with you on the show, which is batteries and lithium. Because one of the justifications, people who say, no, 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 this, we can manage this transition, we can uh, generate the, the electricity we need because we're all going to have these great new batteries that we're developing, these new, clean, fantastic lithium batteries. Uh, and we are already seeing a, a surge in the demand for lithium. And I wonder if you could talk about, you know, what what it is going to look like, what it already looks like uh, to take that mineral uh, out of the earth to power this, you know, this supposed climate solution. Absolutely. Well, I'm actually joining you right now from Thacker Pass, Nevada, which is uh, planned to be the site of the largest lithium mine in North America. It is an incredibly biodiverse and beautiful place. I pulled in late last night and uh, the crickets were singing and all you could see was this incredibly dark sky filled with stars. And uh, building massive numbers of electric vehicles would basically mean destroying this entire mountainside I'm sitting on right now, turning it into a highly industrialized zone and and either killing or driving away all the creatures who live here now. Uh, And it would also involve, you know, impacts to the water, various toxins and different forms of pollution, including including greenhouse gases. Um, And all of that, you know, for what? Again, we don't need cars. Cars are a luxury good. And you go back a couple generations and our ancestors didn't have cars. We got by fine without them. So, of course, you know, I'm not dumb. Of course, we built this way of life that's based on cars now. So a lot of us are reliant on them. But the point is, we can change that. And that's where we should be putting our energy, rather than into blowing up mountains like this here in Nevada, uh, blowing up and destroying places like the Lithium Triangle in South America, uh, remote regions of Tibet, Portugal, Serbia, all over the world, people are fighting, you know, not just against lithium mining, but against copper and vanadium and iron ore and all the other minerals required for, uh, you know, an industrial economy that that pushes profit over people and profit over planet. Always. That's always what it's done. It's it's no different in this so-called, you know, green economy era. No, and it just seems wild to once again be sort of uncritically accepting that there is some solution that, uh, you know, we can maintain our current levels of consumption, right? Because nobody's doing any kind of degrowth, right? So in the West, we maintain our current levels of consumption. We sort of wring our hands at development efforts uh, in the global South that require any kind of environmental destruction. And the solution is simply to, uh, you know, to invest more heavily in another incredibly energy intensive and and dirty uh, extraction operation. That's going to be it just seems like on its face, you would go, no, come on, this is ridiculous. We know we're we know you're pulling the wool over our eyes here. And yet, you know, there's mostly just sort of excitement about the prospect. Well, that's certainly the case among investors and the companies which are involved and uh, the politicians who are, you know, largely bought and paid for or at least, you know, significantly coerced by the fact that 
you know, if they're not creating jobs and growing the economy, then their approval ratings are going to tank. Um, you know, that's a challenge with the situation that we live in. We're, the economy that we live in today is dependent upon destroying the planet. And stopping the destruction of the planet means basically dismantling most of the economy as we know it. And that represents very real challenges in terms of how do we house people? How do we provide basic services? How do we get food and, and health care to people and so on? Right. Those are the challenge. That's what our politicians should really be focusing on is taking an adult perspective, taking a step back, taking political risks and saying, look, this sort of imperial industrial model of endless economic growth that our world has been built on for a long time. It can't last. It won't last. And by continuing, by persisting in this, uh, this sort of travesty, we are stealing from the future need to go in a different direction. And yet, you know, we're not really seeing uh, uh, that sort of bravery from, from politicians at this point. I think we will going forward. Uh, I think we're going to see some pretty grim times likely as, you know, global warming accelerates and the results of, of all these other ecological crises that we're facing, you know, overshoot species extinction and so on all start to converge and come together. Yeah, that was grassroots organizer, activist, and author Max Wilbert. Max, uh, thanks as always for joining us. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can go to find more about uh, the activism you're part of at Thacker Pass? Well, folks can check out protectthackerpass.org, and they can find my website at maxwilbert.org. Thanks so much for joining us, Max, again. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. I think, because I want to make sure we have enough time for this next conversation, we're going to skip this next break and go straight to uh, making sure we talk about this devastating storm in Puerto Rico uh, and and the pretty predictable consequences uh, of it right now. We are joined by Monica Jimenez. She's assistant professor of African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She's also an expert in the legal history of the United States and Puerto Rico. Monica, thanks for being here. Thank you guys for having me. So, you know, if you saw the news over the weekend, you would have noticed that uh, Puerto Rico was hit by Hurricane Fiona, uh, which brought 80 mile an hour winds and historic rainfall that continues into today. And as a result, the island's electrical grid was knocked out of service completely, according to the governor of Puerto Rico. Uh, And of course, Monica, I want to talk about this grid because it exemplifies so much of what's wrong between the relationship with uh, the U.S. federal government and Puerto Rico. Uh, But I want to first ask what you can tell us about uh, conditions for people on the island and and the humanitarian situation right now. Sure, yeah. Um, uh, Probably the most dire um, sort of situation is the flooding right now. There is what the National Weather Service has called catastrophic flooding across the um, the main island of Puerto Rico, especially in the south, uh, south-central, southwestern region. Um, and with historic flooding, catastrophic flooding, we have um, mudslides, of course, uh, which we saw when Hurricane Maria passed through Puerto Rico. Um, many rivers have overgrown their bounds and are now sort of freely flowing through the streets of, of uh, mountain towns. Um, the, the sort of uh, sector that's uh, near the coast, of course, on the south, um, the Caribbean coast, is flooded as well. Um, and with that flooding has come um, 
the shutting off of water to a lot of uh, residential customers. So many, many people, especially in that region, don't have running water right now, and on, as well as not having running uh, electricity. Um, and then I would say the sort of psychological uh, trauma of, of living through what feels for a lot of people like another Hurricane Maria. Um, and, you know, I've just checked in anecdotally with my friends and family, um, but the stress of sort of having to live through a situation that feels very familiar and uh, very scary, I think, is taking is taking a toll on people there. And also, I mean, it seems like this, the stress of having to live through this situation without ever having the, uh, I'm not going to say having the opportunity, but without ever seeing uh, a more robust infrastructure put into place to help manage, you know, hurricanes, which are inevitable. And so what what is getting a ton of attention right now is Puerto Rico's grid. And it's interesting to me that a lot of stories uh, covering this, you know, they refer to the fragile grid and they talk about the damage it sustained in 2017 during Hurricane Maria, but it has been five years. And so I, I, I have a feeling you can tell us why the island does not have a, a robust electrical system uh, that it can rely on in these times, as, as you would imagine it was promised with the kind of changes to electrical uh, governance uh, that we've seen over recent years. Yeah, um, I mean that's a, a bit of a difficult question to unpack. The the most the easiest sort of direct answer is that um, there has been a lot of sort of political uh, pol- politicking, I'll say, around the grid, right? Um, and who would get the contracts to run the grid? How the grid would be um, administered? And so it took a long time to sort of for the government to come down on on how that would how that would go, and for the fiscal control board that runs Puerto Rico's finances to weigh in. And ultimately, this company, um, this private corporation, Luma, was chosen uh, to administer the grid. Um, And it's been in place for about a year now, uh, Luma has, and it has failed um, considerably, miserably, to address the needs of the grid and the people. Um, And the the sort of ongoing uh, failure to invest in the grid pre-Hurricane Maria and Post-Hurricane Maria um, is what has led to this, um, to this, you know, apagón, the, the blackout, island-wide blackout that people are experiencing now. And people are upset, rightfully, and also not surprised, given uh, that pre-Hurricane Fiona, there had been, for months, series of rolling blackouts throughout the island. Um, and, you know, Luma's sort of failure to address and harden the grid, right, um, in, the, in the year preceding this hurricane. The governor of Puerto Rico, Pedro Pierluisi, has said Luma Energy is on probation as far as he's concerned. Uh, I wonder if that means there's going to be some meaningful action. Uh, what what you can tell us about the relationship between the governor of Puerto Rico and, uh, and the forces that brought you Luma Energy? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think I don't think the probation, Pierluisi's probation, um, means much to many Puerto Ricans um, as they experience this, um, the sort of convoluted relationships between Puerto Rican politicians and the fiscal control board, um, which are antagonistic, but also sort of self-serving at times, um, leave a lot of people with very little trust in Perlucci's governance as well as in Luma. Um, so, you know, the fact of his rhetoric, I think, is fairly empty, in, in part because he also doesn't have that much power 
right, over, I mean, the, the fiscal control board oversees Puerto Rico's finances, and um, they are the ones who decide on these contracts, right? They're the ones who, who sort of have the purse strings. And so the governor can, you know, say many things and, and try to uh, curry favor, um, but his hands are also tied. Um, but, you know, it's also, he's also not a very popular governor, so... <laughs> Um, I don't know that he has a lot of trust with the people. Who makes up that fiscal control board? Oh, um, currently, I don't know the the names of all the members. It has sort of shifted over the several years, but they are a board of mostly business-oriented um, uh, people and bankers who've been appointed um, by the U.S. government. And Pierluci, as the governor, sits on the board as well, but he's a, a, a non-voting member of the board. Um, many of the board members that have sort of been on and come through have uh, business interests in Puerto Rico or have worked for some of the banks that have um, held loans for Puerto Rico, but there's no requirement that any of those people live in Puerto Rico or be Puerto Rican or have any interest beyond just a financial one. Yeah, which seems to be kind of the, the crux of this issue, right? That the uh, responsibility for Puerto Rico over oversight of things that affect Puerto Ricans have been uh, shifted out of the hands of Puerto Ricans, or at least can be and, and have been for some time. And so it's sort of with that context that I'm curious, uh, you know, Joe Biden has declared a state of emergency for Puerto Rico. This will free up some kind of funding. Um, but, you know, when you look at the role of the U.S. federal government in, in setting the stage for, for the, the catastrophe of Hurricane Mario and now the catastrophe of Hurricane Fiona, you know, what what would you like to see from the U.S. federal government? So four years from now, we aren't seeing another island wide blackout. I mean, I think robust, um, uh, robust infrastructure, right? investment in, in infrastructure, uh, which. It, you know, some of the many of the funds that were sort of earmarked for Puerto Rico um, post Maria weren't actually released to Puerto Rico until Biden took office. So it actually, in 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 actuality, the funds haven't actually been there for that long. Um, so I think swift sort of investment um, and you know less red tape. Last time around when Maria hit, people had a really hard time. Individuals had really hard time accessing um, FEMA help because they needed to produce all sort of documents that they didn't have access to anymore or maybe never had access to. And that let a, let a lot of people sort of in this limbo of trying to get aid, needing it desperately, but not being able to get it because of this sort of bureaucratic uh, machine that had been built around FEMA. Um, so, you know, cutting that and really giving people access to the things they need, as well as working with community organizations, right? Making sure that FEMA isn't coming in with its sort of, you know, colonialist, imperialist, attitude about what can and should be done and actually talking to the communities that are already doing this work, community members that have had to step in where the, where the state has not been present to do that work. Um, and those are the people who are best situated to know what is needed and how to get it done. Um, and, and, I, and last time that didn't happen, and I hope that it happens this time. I mean, I suppose there's slightly more chance of that happening if it was the Biden administration that freed up some of those funds that it sounds like the Trump administration was sitting on. So I hope that happens as well. Monica Jimenez, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, John. We got a couple minutes for headlines here. And I want to ask, well, first of all, I've, I've been talking for quite some time now. If you have a story you want to tell me, feel free. But I... <laughs> 
This story about uh, Jerry Raskin, Jamie Raskin, did that catch your eye yes. in Politico? Yes. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, it's basically Jamie Raskin at age 60 might not be senior enough. Yes. For uh, the promotion that he would like to get the top spot on the House Oversight Committee next year. And that, to me, really encapsulates <laughs> so much that's going wrong in this government. Jimmy Raskin uh, really raised his profile uh, a lot recently oh, yeah. uh, because of his sort of involvement in the January 6th um, uh, investigation. Also, the sort of... Uh, death of his son that kind yes. of happened around the same time the that same he, time he invoked when he talked about that, mm -hmm. um, you know, how much that meant to him. But yeah, so he uh, he's got 72 year old Jerry Connolly and 67 year old Stephen Lynch uh, ahead of him on the panel. They outrank him. Um, you suspect if this was sort of about someone who had demonstrated his usefulness to the party right. and his, I guess, fitness for that position, yeah. such as we measure it. Not going to happen. So the, the Republicans and the Democrats do things completely differently in that respect. The Democrats use the old seniority method to choose their committee chairman. And so you have to be on that committee forever. Before you can become the chairman of it. When I was in college here, there was a, a congressman from the state of Mississippi named Jamie Witten, uh, who was chairman of the Agriculture Committee. And he was 100 years old. 100. Actually, 100. Yeah, he was 100 years old. Um, that's the way the Democrats have always done it. That's the way they like it. And at the age of 60, he's, he's a youngster. He's not going to be able to chair that committee. The Republicans changed the rules for their own caucus. I'm going to say it's 15 years ago, 20 years ago now, where they have to run against each other. You know, you throw your name into the hat and there's a vote within the caucus and and the members decide who the chairman's going to be. And that's why the Republicans are constantly changing committee chairmanships. Yeah, yeah it's. Which seems like that a better seems to be the approach. way to do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, it just encourage you for hanging on forever and ever yeah, and ever. I mean, again, as you know, of course, experience is valuable. But uh, if you can convince the rest of your party that you're the best person for the job. Then maybe you ought to have the job. Yeah. As a as a whippersnapper of 60 years. Yeah. 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 I, I wanted to say something about uh, well, you and I talked about this before the show started. But uh, Donald Trump was in Youngstown, Ohio over the weekend. Um Having been born and raised in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, Youngstown was the nearest city, right, to our little burg that we lived in. So we would have to go to Youngstown. They had a mall, right? We'd do grocery shopping there, whatever. So Youngstown's kind of important to me. Anyway, uh, Trump went to Youngstown to campaign for J.D. Vance in this Senate race against uh, Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan is doing very, very well, even though the race, Politico still rates the race as leans Republican. Um, Tim Ryan is really an Ohio Democrat. He's a conservative, pro-labor, pro-gun, you know, that kind of uh, that kind of Democrat. Well, Trump made this whole thing about himself. No. He's, he spoke at the Cavelli Center, which is kind of the big the big uh, venue. Uh, I saw the Doobie Brothers at the Cavelli Center, for example. It holds about 7000 people. Uh about 5,000 showed up. There were a lot of empty seats. And Trump said, I love this quote from today's edition of the Youngstown Vindicator. 
He said, this is a very important race. This is a great person who I've really gotten to know. Yeah, he said some bad things about me, but that was before he knew me. And then he fell in love. Now he kisses my ass. Uh, I mean, he's not wrong. No, at all. He's not wrong at all. He's not wrong. But it's not it's not what a normal person would say when you're trying to swing a Senate seat. Yeah. He doesn't care. He doesn't, he doesn't care, care about the Senate. He cares, he cares only cares about, about himself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just Breaking shocking. news from John there. Uh, also, do you want to know, we didn't get a chance to talk about this. Uh, did you see this? This is in The Intercept reporting that uh, construction on the border wall is resumed. Oh, for heaven's did sake. Did you see that? Yeah. No. Uh, it's, it's revving back up. The Department of Homeland Security last week uh, detailed plans to address environmental damage brought on by the wall building campaign of Donald Trump, but also confirmed that the wall is going to stay and they are going to fill in gaps. They're going to repair some gates, fill in some gaps and, uh, you know, keep build a few more inches. I, I know that we're to... really short on time, but there are a couple of serious problems with this whole idea. First of all, um, it's not right on the border. It's backaways, and they're going through people's land, through people's farms. They're oh, just yeah. taking it. There have been a bunch of legal battles over it, which which will continue. Yeah. I don't think uh, we're out of time. We we'll, can talk we'll about the rest tomorrow, of it later. I think, yeah. yeah. Thanks to everybody who joined us. Thanks to all our guests. Thanks to the engineers and producers here. And on behalf of Chatty John Kiriakou and myself, <laughs> Michelle Witty, thanks for listening. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow.